0: We are witnessing the, the craving for power, the human craving for power, domination, control. And that craving, that never ceases to amaze me. The power, the, the craving for power and self exaltation. Um, you know, I, many of you know, I studied ancient Germanic society for years and years, Anglo-Saxon and Norse. uh, And I would frequently just have to pause in wonder at what what is shown there, what that craving for power could do. And those were tribal societies. And a tribal society uh, is knit together by the bond of kinship, family. That's what makes a tribe a tribe, a sense of a shared identity. These, those were honor and shame cultures. And so they didn't have holy laws given from a creator God. And that meant the thing that held them together was those bonds of kinship. Without them, the whole, the whole thing come, just comes apart. Preserving the honor of one's family. And so the most important rules and the bonds concerned honor for parents, honor for brothers and sisters. And yet, this is what blows my mind, shocks me. The annals of the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse people are full of fratricide, the killing of brothers, the killing, uh, nephews killing uncles, uncles killing nephews, it's full of it. The most sacred bonds violated again and again. Because when kingship was on the line, when power and control was on the line, brother killed brother, uncle killed nephew. That's the the craving for power and self exaltation would just blow through what passed as the most sacred thing. And all of human history is filled with the same. Germanic people are no different than Asian societies, African societies, where you see the same thing, the sacred bond violated. Whenever there's a change in power, whole families get wiped out. That craving, that craving for power and the expectation that it's going to be claimed when power's open, it's going to be claimed and wielded whenever possible is so pervasive that it's a given for us, it's a given for us. We're not in an honor-shame culture, but it's a given for us, right? We expect it in shifts of power when there's a change in the presidency. Every election year when the balance shifts from one party to the next, what do we expect? Sudden movements of overturning, of pushing agendas. It is human to claim and wield Power. Whenever the, that scepter of authority can be seized, we're seeing it unfold It's human. And that basic human understanding is also what fills assumptions of the passage we're looking at today. We're in John 2, beginning in verse 12. John 2, beginning in verse 12. To, to set that moment, though, let's, let's consider the opening the course of events that mark the beginning of Jesus' public work. This is what we've been covering the last few weeks. First, John the Baptist. He's a wild-eyed prophet. He's out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. Huge numbers of Jews are going out to hear him. Why? Because this wild young man is telling that I am the forerunner of the Christ. I am the one that was promised, that would come before and announce that this king, the anointed king, is on his way. After me comes one so exalted that I cannot do the lowliest task, I cannot even do the slave task of untying his sandal. He is that exalted, heaven's anointed king. So the moment's charged with anticipation. They're excited. Jews have been waiting over 700 years for this. Isaiah promised this anointed king would come. They've been waiting. There hadn't been a prophet for 400 years. Now, wild-eyed John, there's a prophet. And he says, the king is coming. So they're out there. And then one day, as the crowd builds, one day John says, there he is. And at the end of his point is a peasant. Peasant from Galilee. And immediately some of John's disciples start following him. And he welcomes them. And last week we saw, we followed the the progress here as he moved to Galilee. Galilee. Where he came from. And at a wedding, he showed his glory to those disciples who were close. He showed that he has the power to transform nature, water into wine. And it fit. That fit because this promised Christ was also a prophet king. He was like Moses. He could work wonders. It fit. Yes. The prophet king, he could restore the feast. When there was nothing to eat, he could restore the feast. And he did it. He showed them he could do it. Water, when our wine runs out, he could give something better. So we don't know if word got out from Cana. doesn't matter. Certainly word got out from the riverside with John the Baptist. It came to Jerusalem. John has finally announced, he's here. The king is here. The king has come. And as that that message, it, it moves through the countryside, and it comes to Jerusalem, both spiritual powers and earthly powers felt the tremor of it. The king. The king is here. So when Jesus came then to the first Passover, After that announcement, after he has been proclaimed and announced as the anointed king, everyone expected that he would do what any king does, what anyone does when the opening for power comes. He would seize it. He would seize it. And so they're watching him as he comes to the temple So now on his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus went to the massive temple complex. This is what King Herod had spent his whole reign building. And there in the court of the Gentiles, that's the outer court of the temple, very large outer court, there was a circus, a fair. So we get from the New Testament and from ancient Jewish sources, we get some insights into this we learned that around every major feast of the jews this circus popped up um, so for parallel you might think about what what happens in advance of christmas easter the 4th of july stalls pop up everywhere most absurd halloween whole stores open i can't get my mind around that there are stores that open up selling costumes and makeup and Bizarreness. And used to be two weeks. Now it's six weeks before Halloween. Uh, Christmas, what was it? Almost three months before Christmas. So we can get a sense of carnival that happens before the festival. A circus. It's a holiday market. So for these Jerusalem festivals, as prescribed by law, they would need oxen, sheep, doves. For sacrifice. So they would make a sacrifice, and then they would feast for a week with family and friends. That's a great festival. They could bring their own sacrifice from home. They could bring, if they lived close enough, bring a sheep, or they could buy it in Jerusalem. And so there were those shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Those are keepers of the flocks for temple festival. But if they came from far away, they would have to buy. And at these festivals, a diaspora had happened. The Jews had spread over all the the world, all the known world. And so they were coming from far away to this temple. And also at Passover, uh, the half shekel temple tax was due. If you were a Jewish family, you would have to pay per male, per adult male, half shekel tax. It had to be paid in Jewish money we're not going to accept Roman pagan coins for the temple, Jewish money. That's where the money changers come in. Every transaction that happened on the temple grounds had to use Jewish money. But most, uh, most, um, most of the economy functioned with, with Roman and Greek coins. So there was a limited supply of Jewish currency and it's centered at the temple. So what's the problem? This, this celebration is good, it's prescribed by law. We've got, we've got mechanisms to make the festival happen. There are two issues. So from the common people's perspective, from our perspective, they were facing a mafia racket. Uh, So it was like paying Disneyland and state fair prices on those temple grounds. Uh, At one point, a pair of doves cost 20 times at the temple what it would cost in a village just outside. 20 times. I think that that even exceeds Disney bucks or uh, state, state fair tickets. So then after buying the animals, they would have to have them certified as sacrifice worthy, and you had to pay a fee to get it certified. But because all of this happened on the temple grounds, that fee had to be paid in temple money, had to be paid in Jewish coinage, hence the money changers. With every uh, currency exchange, there was a fee exorbitant exchange fees. So it's bad enough when fees are connected with fun. Like, I'm irritated if I go to the fair. I I hate that, I hate, sorry kids, I hate the fair. Where are you? I I hate it. Uh, It galls that racket. It's bad enough when it's for fun. How horrible when it's connected with the worship of God and our very identity. So as these common Jewish people are coming, they're in the grip of the high priestly family and their cronies because that's who's overseeing the mafia. This scheme, it was so well-known, it had a mocking name that pops up across ancient sources. They called it the Bazaar of Annas and Sons, Annas the High Priest. The Bazaar of the High Priest and Sons. And it was a matter, until that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, this was a matter of deep anger and resentment by the common people. That's one issue. As as Jesus comes, the deeper issue is what he points to, what he says, when he flips the tables and he drives out the animals and he scatters the coins. Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house. A house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. So, in addition to exploitation, that's bad enough. A mafia racket from the priests. Basically, what had been happening is that the high priest and his family had brought an idol into the temple. An idol. Another god, money. They had brought their god, and they had set it up in the temple. This is like Eli's sons. They were using their position to get rich, to be comfortable. And they used the occasions of God's feet. They used the occasions of worship to get rich. The worship of God that made Israel a nation, that gave this people a sense of who we are. They got rich so that they could worship their own God, wealth. What they're showing here, this scorn, this contempt for the holy presence of God, they're showing unbelief. So troubling, isn't it? The high priests and the Sadducees that supported that structure displayed contempt unbelief right in the temple where worship was supposed to happen. These are the models. They're supposed to model faithfulness. They're supposed to teach the people how to follow God. This is how they're teaching the people. Worship another God. And this, this this is blasphemy. That's what blasphemy means. Contempt for God in his face, It matches the contempt for God shown by ancient kings like Manasseh, who brought other idols, statues of Ashtaroth and Baal, right into the temple grounds. Idolatry in God's face. It's an idolatry that says, we don't believe that you see, we don't care. We don't believe that you care what we do, even in the most holy place called your house. So take note of this. These these same Jewish leaders, they're the ones who are going to scorn Jesus' teaching over the next three years. They're going to ignore his signs and wonders. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. These are the same ones. They don't believe, they're not going to believe God made flesh because they didn't believe God in the beginning. It's not that they, it's not that they changed their view, that they just didn't like what Jesus said. They did not believe God. If you can, if you can set up your idol right in his face, in the holiest of places, that's Demonstrated unbelief. Well, so it, it's uh, it is remarkable that those same leaders don't resist Jesus on that first occasion when he comes to the temple, first time there. They don't they don't stand up to him. They don't wave their hands. They don't try to stop him. They don't resist him. Probably for two reasons. The first is maybe obvious. The crowd loves it. <laughs> this ma- the massive crowd that's there for the festival, they see Jesus, who they have expected, they've heard rumors of, they see him exercise authority, and finally, someone is confronting this racket. Someone's standing up to the mafia, finally. So you could imagine they're, yes, yes, just yes. drive them out. But what's more, this is the one that John the Baptist has announced. This is the one who John says has authority to do all of this. And it's what they might have expected. After those bad kings in the Old Testament, when a righteous king came to the throne, remember what he did? He threw out the idols. Hezekiah, Josiah. That's why we know they're righteous. They took those idols out of the temple. They smashed them. They burned them. They went to the high places. They threw down the idols. The people are seeing Jesus, this, this peasant that John said is the king. He's doing what a king does, he's doing it. And so the Sadducees, those leaders of the temple, They are in no position to oppose an enthusiastic crowd. You remember that refrain? It comes through the Gospels frequently. They didn't do something because of the crowds. That's what it's talking about. This. Secondly, the priests and Sadducees, they know they're in the wrong. They've got to know. They are in the wrong. Uh, His actions are in perfect accord with what they should have done what the position they should have been taking. Transaction and commerce should be outside the temple grounds. It should happen. There should be this transaction to enable the worship. But it should be outside, in the outlying villages. And of course, I mean, they know the kind of money they're making. They know the exorbitant fees. They've, they've counted the coins. So these two reasons the crowds and their own knowledge of their wrongdoing, bring them to where they can, all they can say is by what authority do you do this? What sign can you show us that you have authority? Again, they don't call into question what he's doing. How can you prove that you have the authority to execute this? Well, it's interesting, we can read from the text, that Jesus is about to do a bunch of signs and wonders. Verse 23, over the course of the next week, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And then, in in chapter 3, we know about Nicodemus, comes to him by night, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee, not one of these temple leaders, he's a Pharisee. And he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. None of the Gospels record what he did on that first visit among the people. They don't record his teaching. They don't record the the signs, the healing. In fact, only John tells us anything really about these first movements of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all pick up. So after the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness, they pick up when he's back in Galilee. They don't talk about this. Only John talks about this moment. So if you've ever tried to line up the the Gospels and uh, put together a chronology, John is really valuable because he gives us these first movements of the ministry. Really, the first six months. But right here at the beginning, right at the beginning, Jesus is in the temple doing signs. Yet what he answers the temple priest, he doesn't point, those priests who who don't believe, he he doesn't answer them according to their belief. He doesn't point to the signs that he does. He doesn't point to his power to heal. Instead, he points to who he is and the reason that he'd come. And in fact, he points to their role, the role that they're going to have in this unfolding plan. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. By what authority do you do these things? Do a sign. Jesus knew why he came. Wasn't, you know, as he grow, we don't know. We don't know when the Lord gave him knowledge of what that mission was. But from the beginning of his public activity, he knew what he was doing. He knew why he came. And he declares what he'll do. He's gonna give a A sign that isn't really a sign. It's the thing itself. He will reopen the way to paradise. Destroy this temple. He's going to reopen the way to paradise through death. And so he declares to them, here is the dwelling place of God on earth. That, that's what the Jerusalem temple was supposed to be. The dwelling place of God on earth. Like, like kids, like we talked about. Where, where Jesus is having this conversation is in the place where God was supposed to dwell on earth. And Jesus shifts it. God has come and he's taken on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus is saying, up to now, you met God in a place like this. But the temple's here. The temple's here now. And within three years, those people that he's talking to are going to destroy that temple. And in three days, he's going to raise it up. And in that raising up, he's going to open the way to paradise. So there he is, the prophet king, demonstrating authority, announcing his mission to open that way. And John tells us, verse 23, many believed that he was the Christ. They believed in his name. But it wasn't faith in him. It's an interesting moment. They believe, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Who is this crowd? This crowd is ready for a revolution. They're ready for the seizure of power. Like we started with, this is one who might have the authority. They want it. They believe in his name, Christ. They believe he has the authority to seize power. But they weren't ready to accept his every word as the word of God. They weren't ready for that. Revolution they can handle, total submission. To the voice of God made flesh, not ready for that. They didn't know him. They believed he was the Christ, but they didn't know him. So any other human politician would have seized this moment. Jesus is no human politician. He hadn't yet taught them about the kingdom of God that is a kingdom not of this world. He hadn't yet revealed heaven Heaven's glory and heaven's ways. He hadn't revealed the glory of the only Son as of the glory of the Father. But right here, we have to take note of this. As we walk through John, right here at the beginning of his work, Jesus left no doubt that he was claiming divine authority. He had authority to do this. And everything that he did and taught, he did with authority. And then when the time was right, he would fulfill his special mission that he'd come for. And he wants to make sure that his disciples hear, I know why I've come. Right from the beginning. This did not happen to me. Jesus Christ is never a passive victim. Jesus Christ gives himself. He goes to death. So, friends, what is the temple now? Let's just say it. What is the temple now? You are. I am. Say it. I am. What is the temple now? I am. This gathering of people here, this is the temple. Every believer is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and the Word tells us we are living stones. We are like living stones built together into a household of God where He joins with us and He fills our worship. He makes it. He, He enables us to lift right worship to Him. And from this passage, let's take note about our Lord. He brings right order to his temple. That's what he's doing there. He brings right order. There's no place in the temple of God for the worship of other gods. There's no place for idols in the temple of God. And he will flip over the tables He'll overturn the idols. He will drive them out of his temple. He has zeal for his house. He has zeal for you. The Almighty God has zeal for the house that is you. You that are made a holy place because he's there. He has zeal for. He loves his place out of love for us. He wants us to be a welcome place for his holy presence. He wants us to be a welcome place for his spirit because where the spirit is is freedom. He wants you to be a place of freedom. Free to worship him. Free to enjoy him. Without encumbrance, without obstacle, without obsessions without our affections to something that's dying. He wants to free us from those things. And so out of zeal for you, love for you, he will cleanse. He wants us to be completely devoted to him so there won't be competition for our affection. But we've all got a little bit of a Sadducee hanging on inside. I don't know if you imagine, I've got a little Sadducee talking. It's just in in our nature. A little, something still battling our flesh. We've got a tendency to set up a stall in our heart. Selling doves and ox. We have this tendency to, to reserve a place in our hearts for a worldly hope, a worldly security. We've got this tendency to believe that, I mean, the Sadducees thought that freedom for Israel came through cooperating with Rome. That will be freedom for us. There's an almighty power in the earth, and it's called Rome. Rome. If we cooperate with that, we'll have freedom. It's blasphemy. Do we think, do we believe that if we just will cooperate with, with, just go along with something, then we'll be free? We've got a bit of Sadducee, a place of unbelief. That's what they had. It was unbelief in the almighty God where we convince ourselves God either doesn't know or he doesn't care, He doesn't love us enough to give us something greater than this worldly hope, the gospel reminds us that he does care. Jesus. Jesus allowed his whole flesh, all of him, to be destroyed, all of him taken to death, so that when he rose, all of him would be renewed. That is, he took all of our sin, all of our corruption, all of uh, human desolation into death, so that when he, when he rises, and when we're joined with him, we can be totally renewed. Renewed. He wants to raise every bit of us to new life. His Spirit is cleansing our temple. That's the work of the Spirit in us, cleansing us, transforming us, transfiguring us from one degree of glory to the next. He's reshaping our character. He's reshaping us into restored man and woman, Adam and Eve, the design, the image that he made us for, he is restoring. He's driving out the old Sadducee. Bit by bit, the zeal and love of the Lord is cleansing us. The old Sadducee, with all the coin of that realm, all the coin of this realm, out So let him do it. Let him do it. It's for freedom that he has set us free. Let him set you free. He does it from love. And he will do it as we welcome him. Lord, you do things so strangely. And you displayed in Jesus that when you might just seize power and wield it, you choose the way of sacrifice. You choose the way of gentleness. And now you do the same thing in us. When you could just wreck us, you could pull us inside out, you choose the way of gentleness, healing, Restoration. Thank you for who you are and how you deal with us. And I pray that you would give, give everyone here that has a willing heart, the grace to surrender a bit more. Give each of us a little more willingness to let you have control.